This event was recorded live at the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Uh, good evening, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening, and a, a very warm welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name's Nick Barley, and I'm the director of the festival. This is my, my first year, and I'm very glad to see many faces I recognise and many that I don't. So welcome, if this is your first time, to this event, which is sponsored by the Scottish Oil Club. Now, I hadn't heard of the Scottish Oil Club before they became along as sponsors, so let me explain to you who they are, in case you don't know. The Scottish Oil Club is a national forum for the presentation and discussion of views on the economic, industrial, technological and political aspects of petroleum and other energy resources. They meet monthly in Edinburgh, and they have a website you can check out if you'd like to know more. So they're a debating group, a discussion group, um, about all aspects of oil. And thank you to them for becoming a new sponsor this year. I wanted us to take a minute just to explain uh, the way this event fits into the festival as a whole. This event kicks off a strand of debates which will be taking place all week, each of them chaired by the inimitable Ruth Wishart. Now, first of all, a word about Ruth. We, we chose Ruth as to chair all of these events because, in my opinion, she's one of the greatest Scottish journalists of her generation. And that's not just my view, because every year, festival audiences here in Edinburgh vote her as their favorite chair. So we wanted her to be in charge of these debates. And the debates are all linked together. And the, the question that we're trying to ask with these debates is whether we are in uh, some kind of end state. In reading several hundred books in the preparation of this festival, I'd noticed that in fiction, how many books there are which are describing a kind of end state. Um, uh, if you've read Cormac McCarthy's The Road, that apocalyptic story, you'll know what I mean. Hundreds of books are being written by uh, fiction uh, about this, this kind of weird place we find ourselves in. Are we at the end of 500 years of Western hegemony? Is the Gutenberg era ending as we move towards a new digital age? These are the questions that, that novelists are asking. And we wanted to put together a series of debates which ask the same question. Um, in real life, uh, is the nature of friendship changing as Facebook allows us to show we have 250 friends? Is our relationship with money changing uh, as, as the banking system has, has perhaps let us down over the last few years and, and our ideas of, of what we mean by wealth are changing? These are difficult questions. These are questions which don't normally get debated in debates. And so we've put them all together this week for a series of debates which will all be chaired by Ruth Wishart. We've set her a difficult challenge, but I've got a feeling she's up to it. And so please welcome onto the stage for tonight's debate, Ruth Wishart and tonight's speakers who she'll introduce. Thanks. Thank you very much, Nick. I'm, I'm slightly concerned that that was so nice it's in lieu of a fee. <laughs> Can I add uh, my welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the speaker tent and to this evening's debate around the increasingly vexed topic of powering the planet. Now, it's our firm intention tonight to try and generate um, more light than heat, most especially in a week where Edinburgh has uh, been the scene of a number of protests against what was seen as inappropriate uh, RBS investment policies. 
um, by those who attended the climate camp. And I think I'd like to take this opportunity of rebutting press suggestions that I manhandled one of those protesters off the podium in the main stage. I put a gentle arm round her shoulders and indicated that irritating a Glaswegian of a certain age had a downside. <laughs> she left. Now, tonight there will be uh, ample opportunity for the audience to state their personal case against the backdrop of a world which uh, can see climate change all round it, even if there's still heated arguments about the extent to which it's been caused by willful human behaviour. Worldwide, in these recent weeks, we've seen floods in Pakistan, we've seen drought in Africa, wildfires in Russia, and the breaking up of glaciers in the Arctic and Greenland. And each of these events has in turn been labelled unprecedented. Yet the much-heralded global conference um, on climate change in, in, in Copenhagen collapsed both in disarray and recrimination. At UK level, the last major white paper on energy identified two main challenges. Tackling climate change by reducing carbon dioxide emissions and ensuring secure, clean and affordable energy. In Scotland, the targets for meeting these challenges were amongst the most ambitious in the world, although the jury is still out as to whether or not these can be met. And then, of course, there is the ongoing tension we all know about um, between Westminster and Holyrood over nuclear policy. So no shortage of meaty topics for our panellists tonight. Um, Benny Pizer, who's on my immediate left, is the director of the Global Warming Policy Foundation, set up very recently by Nigel Lawson, Sceptical about the extent to which our current problems are caused by irresponsible human activity. Duncan McLaren in the centre has been the chief executive in Scotland of Friends of the Earth for the last seven years and he has led that organisation's campaign against nuclear power in Scotland. And on my far left, and I'm not sure if that's right, um, on my far left is uh, Susan Deacon, who's an honorary professor uh, in Edinburgh's Uni Edinburgh University School of Social and Political Science and in another incarnation, the Chair of Scottish Power Renewables. Please welcome them all. Now, what we're going to do, because this is very much an interactive uh, um, part of the International Book Festival, is we're going to hear an opening presentation from all of our three uh, distinguished guests tonight. Uh, that's going to be quite short. We'll equally have a, a very short interaction between ourselves on questions. And then the rest of the evening and the floor is yours. So first off uh, in the batting order this evening is Duncan McLaren. Thanks very much, Ruth. Um, I've given myself a script because otherwise I'd just go on and on and on. And I know Ruth would stop me, but uh, <laughs> well, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll forgive me for, for trying to refer to the script. I'm going to start by noting the amount of solar energy reaching the surface of the planet is so great that in one year, one year, it is about twice as much as will ever be obtained cumulatively from all of the Earth's non-renewable resources of coal, oil, natural gas, and mined uranium. So that's about 8,000 times current primary energy demand. So we only have to tap into a very small fraction of that to power the world renewably. The question is not a technical one, really. It's whether we're willing to pay for it. If, even if, though, we don't make a transition to renewables, all the evidence says that energy prices are going to rise. 
um, that conventional energy is going to get more expensive and more polluting. Despite recent finds of shale gas and Arctic oil, consumption of those fossil fuels outstrips growth in reserves. And you may have heard the phrase peak oil, peak gas. Well, those are coming, and the result of reaching the peak in production is that prices will rise and become more volatile. New sources of oil, like tar sands, are also typically much more polluting, and new crude oil, conventional oil, is coming from environments where the risks of pollution are greater, such as the deeper waters of the Gulf, where we saw BP could not control an underwater blowout for, for months on end, and as we've heard yesterday, or today, um, in the waters off Greenland that Cairn Energy intend to exploit. So that's oil and gas. Coal is the third conventional main fossil fuel, and we hear a lot about cleaner coal, which means using carbon capture and technology, uh, sorry, carbon capture and storage technology to reduce the carbon emissions. It's an expensive technology. It could help, but at the current standards required, it would lead to more emissions per unit of electricity than burning gas. And it doesn't change one jot the impacts on the environment and humans of mining the coal, the open cast mining, mountaintop removal techniques that are being used now. The move to oil sands and things like that is a market response to demands for energy security. Um, but they can't deliver energy sustainability. That's because too many of the environmental and human costs of energy supply are still not included in market prices. Fundamentally, at the, at the heart, there is a massive problem in that the visible impacts of climate change lag for many years behind the emissions. So markets can't see them, can't react to them. Nothing, however, changes the physical reality that greenhouse gas emissions matter to the world's climate. Ruth mentioned Pakistan and, and Russian, Pakistan floods and Russian heat waves. There is an if. But it's a small if that it remains. Um, if those floods are in any significant sense a product of climate change, these events show us that it might be fair to say that nothing matters more than climate change. Climate change and its impacts could wipe away any gains we could make in human development, disease control, poverty alleviation. The whole of the Millennium Development Goals, for instance, are put at threat. But I don't actually want to spend all my time tonight talking about the horrors we might face if we get energy policy wrong. I want to talk about the benefits of getting it right, about the massive potential for renewable energy and energy conservation, about the improvements in health, equity and economy that can flow from harnessing these sources. For instance, about the halving of obesity that could be achieved with walking and cycling rates like those in the Netherlands and Denmark about the relative employment benefits of efficiency, 15 times greater than coal power in terms of the jobs created, about the reductions in respiratory diseases and the 25% reduction in days off work for people who live in houses that are properly insulated, about the relative economic costs of energy efficiency. It's about a fifth to as good as a tenth those of nuclear or wind power, which are otherwise the cheapest sources of electricity. And about the importance of walking the talk if leadership is to be credible. 
Scottish Government has set itself out as leaders. They now have to reject the fossil fuel solutions if they're going to demonstrate to the watching world that delivering those meaningful greenhouse gas targets that they've set is possible in practice. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the moral case that underpins all of this. It's not just that climate change threatens the poorest sooner and more severely, as we're seeing in Pakistan. It's also that our supplies of coal and oil increasingly come from countries like Nigeria or Colombia, where, yes, there are cheap supplies of fossil fuels, but there are, these are directly associated with serious breaches of human rights in labour forces or local communities. And as the climate camp has highlighted this week, albeit through methods that I wouldn't condone, including invading the stage when, uh, when Ruth is chairing, um, the success of our financial sector, perhaps success would be better, um, has depended in part on exploiting such moral black holes. Scotland is a small country, but we have the climate and indeed the geography for wind, wave and tidal power and perhaps surprisingly, we may be going to this later, for sensible use of solar thermal heating, and also with our um, ageing oil fields, to demonstrate the transport and storage elements of carbon capture and storage. We've also taken the bold step of establishing world-leading climate legislation, in part to provide the right signals to sustainable energy developers. We shouldn't leave the job half done. Thanks very much, Duncan, and now Benny Pizer. Um, I would like to make four points, basically, tonight. Uh, the first is that conventional climate and energy policies are in complete disarray and have no future whatsoever. Um, secondly, there's a clear need for alternative approaches, particularly to energy policy, that are politically realistic and economically viable. Thirdly, the future of energy policy and climate policies, for that matter, will ultimately depend completely and will be determined by this government's and the next's desperate attempt to revive the UK economy, to raise its competitiveness and radically reduce the astronomical debt burden and the fourth point, the green agenda has become unpopular among voters and businesses um, who are increasingly hostile to the whole idea that uh, everything green has to be more expensive and is amplified by their concerns about uh, rising energy prices, rising petrol prices, rising heating prices. And you can see all over the world a huge backlash and not least uh, the recent elections in, government, uh, in Australia uh, show that even a, an outspoken critic of the Green Agenda might be the next Prime Minister of Australia. So these are the four points. Um, I think what is desperately needed in this country is a sense of reality of what is actually going on in the rest of the world. Uh, Britain's unilateral 
targets for CO2 reductions and unilateral targets for decarbonization. They all look fantastic on paper. But people forget or ignore that the rest of the world simply doesn't care. The reality is that uh, countries are scrambling for the cheapest energy resources they can get hold of, that there are hundreds and hundreds of millions of people in this world who are aspiring to an urban middle-class living standard, aspiring to have cars, aspiring to have uh, holidays abroad, and the energy demand, and that is what most people forget, is the energy demand in the next 30 or 40 years is astronomical. Um, in countries like China and India, it's going to treble in the next 30 years. Where is this energy going to come from? Uh, in the absence of real alternatives, and by real alternatives, I mean, of course, we heard that you know, the sun produces an enormous amount of energy. Uh, there's only one little problem. It's extremely expensive to, um, to use it and to generate electricity. And in the absence of a real alternative to cheap energy, which remains for the foreseeable future, uh, fossil fuels, um, and unless there is a technological breakthrough that can produce that kind of alternative, the realistic assumption and all the estimates by the International Energy Agency and others uh, take that realistic view is that for at least for the foreseeable future, countries will remain dependent on cheap fossil fuels, whether you like it or not. Um, even this country, where the targets are basically in law, uh, the Climate Change Act, is, is, a, is, a, is a legal bill. Um, the government already, uh, the greenest of all governments, as we know, um, is uh, um, getting cold feet and is moving away from this agenda. And I read with quite astonishment that now the government's main role will be to lobby other countries for the oil industry. I mean, many of you, I'm sure, will be very happy about that, that the government now becomes the biggest lobbyist for energy companies. But Apparently, that is the desperation. And um, I don't think that is actually the role of a government, but there you have it. The greenest government is betting for the big energy companies. The point is that the economic crisis we're facing, and most people don't really realize just how severe this crisis is going to be, uh, renders all these costly schemes completely ineffective and politically not viable. And so from a realistic point of view, governments will be faced with a question, with a basic question, how are we going to power our countries? Are we burdening our, our industries, our businesses unilaterally while other nations are, are uh, competing with us uh, based on very cheap uh, fuels? Are we going to unilateral unilaterally burden our nation and our industries with additional costs. And we heard already uh, that uh, um, prices will go up, but price will go up particularly if you introduce schemes that add to that burden. And let me be clear, everyone will agree, every economist will agree, 
that any country that will go for the expensive energy uh, sources will lose out in the comp uh, competition and countries that can remain competitive by using the cheapest energy will win out. And this is exactly what's happening. You just need to read the news. Uh, who are the countries who are um, having the biggest economic uh, growth rates? These are the countries with, uh, that use the cheapest energy. So to come to, to really uh, cut a long story short, um, anyone who is really concerned about CO2 emissions uh, need to explain why they oppose nuclear energy. That is the big kind of, because let's face it, Fossil fuels, and I agree with my uh, uh, speaker here from Greenpeace, that fossil fuels are um, basically running out. It might take 100 years, it might take 200 years, who knows? Oil will run out earlier than coal. Britain only has 200 years worth of coal. So, you know, eventually even uh, coal will run out and eventually we'll all need alternative energies. The question is how do we get there and do we force it or do we basically let the uh, market drive this development? And I think that's where the, the big controversy uh, lies. Thank you very much. I did wonder, I did wonder Benny, what you're going to say when you said I, one area where I agree with my my yeah, I was saying colleague. I, I thought it. I thought colleague, colleague I, friend, perhaps not speaker. Yes. Speaker, yes. <laughs> Could we have uh, the last contribution in this in this segment from Susan Deacon? Thank you. Thanks, Ruth. Um, I'm going to take a very different tack, I think, in this discussion, um, because I think that's one of the wonderful things about this boot festival is you can do a bit of that. Um, Ruth mentioned a couple of the hats that I currently wear, neither of which I was wearing actually when I agreed to do this a d debate. It occurs to me, but some of you will know of a past hat too, where I had the the dodgy past, if you like, of being uh, in elected office as a Labour politician for eight years in uh, the Scottish Parliament and part of that time in government. And much of what I want to share with you tonight is as much shaped by that as anything that I've done since or indeed before. Having said that, I have spent probably now more than 25 years, I hate to admit, agitating and cogitating about how we bring about real and practical change in this wee country of ours. Um, and that's really a little bit about what I want to share with you here tonight, because we need to get better both at debating the issue of our energy future, but critically also bringing about change. I do broadly buy into the science. I'm going to resist the temptation of engaging with uh, some of Benny's dissing of uh, so, so much of uh, where the broad political and public consensus has, has now settled around that. But quite simply, I think it makes sense. It makes sense for our generation, but critically it makes sense for future generations that we think about our energy future and we think about how we come together to have a future that achieves a range of different things, all of which matter to all of us. Security of supply matters to us. The future of our environment and our climate matter to us. The fact that we want the most vulnerable in society to still be able to pay for fuel in the future and to be able to heat their homes 
matters to us. And yes, actually, we all want to keep the lights on. Now, too much of our debate in this area, I observe over the years, has been spent with people in different corners. We're now at a stage where we have to be coming into some shared space about this and think about how we work together to combine these different objectives. I'm all for debates around the science. I'm all for a constructively critical debate about the shortcomings of the political process here or abroad. But at the end of the day, we need to think about how we bring about real change in real time. There has actually been a huge amount of agreement in Scotland in these post-devolution years about broadly what our energy future should look like, particularly setting very ambitious targets as far as re renewable energy production is concerned. I'm pleased that in Scotland, I think we've gone a long way in successive governments, not least the current one, and I have no difficulty saying that, although I come from a, a different political stable, has, have gone a long way to bring people around the table from across sectors and across backgrounds and try and find that shared space as to how we move forward. But we are still too good, it has to be said, about crafting policy and setting targets, and less good about thinking about how we bring about the change that's needed to make them happen. There's a lot more still to do to accelerate how quickly we actually translate policy and decisions into practice. It may sound rather clunky and dull compared to some of the big ideas that, that we've just heard, but frankly, we need to constantly work to accelerate our planning process, for example, so that when we have agreed to construct something or develop something, we can make it happen more quickly. We need also constantly to challenge ourselves about our own behavior. Again, no amount of government policy setting targets for, for example, energy conservation and fuel efficiency will in and of themselves change our behavior. And it's all too easy, I think, often just to point to government, point to policymakers, and not hold up a mirror about our own lifestyles and our behaviors. And I think that's gotta be a part of this debate. And critically, we need to have a very grown-up discussion about how we pay for energy in the future. And when I say we, I mean in the very, very broadest societal sense. Um, there's no question about it, particularly as we go down the road to further diversification and exploiting other renewable technologies, there are significant costs involved. And again, we can either point fingers and say it's somebody else's job to address how that's paid for or who pays for it, or we can have a joined-up discussion and think about how that's done. Because I repeat the point that simply setting targets in and of themselves doesn't get us there. And there's one final point that I want to make, and it's something I've spent a lot of my life and work thinking about and engaged in, and I believe this very, very passionately, that there's a lot wrong, I think, with the way that our generation, if I can say in the broadest sense, and there's a bit of a, a new spectrum here, but in the broadest sense, there's a lot wrong with the way that we've tackled these issues both in terms of how we think about them, talk about them, but also what we've done in terms of the Earth's resources. And this is well documented, particularly over the last few decades, have um, been so casual, really, about how we consume. There's a real chance to ensure that those that come after us get a bit better at conserving the Earth's resources and at joining up their thinking and their action than we have done. And if I can just end a very Scottish point, <laughs> if I may, there's a big change going on just now about changing our, our curricular our approach to education here in schools in Scotland. I think that this discussion is probably one of the best examples and probably one of the most important examples of how we can ensure that our youngsters in the future 
actually understand the interconnections between different behaviours and different decisions and the different impacts that they have and the way that they can come together and make a practical difference for the future. So the change that I'd like to see is us getting into that practical space, that very pragmatic space, getting into that shared space so that we're not just discussing these issues or re repeating the arguments in years to come, but we can look back and see we've actually made a difference now. Thank you, Susan. I think you can tell from that why a lot of people were very disappointed that Susan decided to leave frontline politics. Um, I'm going to just ask one question of our speakers tonight and then leave the, the floor open to our uh, uh, audience. And now that I can see that Duncan and Susan are engaged in sharing drink, I'll put my first question to Benny. Um, it's about, just in a sense, picking up one of the smaller points you made, Benny, which was suggesting that the political will was disappearing in, in a global context as well as in a local context. You talked about um, the fact that, and we don't know as of this evening, that there might be a kind of, if you can put it that way, an anti-green Prime Minister uh, emerging in Australia. My understanding, and my understanding of Australian politics is not vast, but my understanding of what I've learned in the last 40 hours is the reason that Tony Abbott did well was because, not because he was hostile to the green agenda, but because the rest of Australia was very upset that the previous Labour Prime Minister was unable to deliver on a green agenda and upset that um, the now Labour Prime Minister ejected him when he'd, uh, in their view, seen the way clearly forward on uh, a response to climate change. Yeah, you're right. Um, there, there are uh, people moving from Labour to the Greens uh, because the Greens are obviously greener than Labour. Even the, the Green, you know, the Labour Party thought that that would be a, a winning topic to go green. Uh, they forgot that there is a Green Party which is much greener than they are. No, but I think my point was that and the votes for Tony Abbott were not reflecting an anti-green popular sentiment. They were reflecting an anti-Labour popular sentiment. No, no, they were, I mean, Tony Abbott in Australia is very well known for his anti-green agenda. And, and one of the big uh, controversies in Australia was the whole issue of a carbon tax uh, emissions trading scheme. And that was one of his big selling points. He, he's basically promised uh, the Australians that under his uh, government, they, they wouldn't have to pay more for energy. That was his big point. And that was the reason why, I mean, uh, we don't need to uh, discuss Australian politics, but two leaders, party leaders, fell over this green and climate issue. Uh, first, uh, the, the Turnbull, the, the leader of the Conservative Party, who also went on this green uh, ticket, uh, fell because there was a rebellion against him because he supported the carbon tax. And then uh, um, the, the Labour Party leader, fell on the same issue. So what and, for and a different the, reason. No, no, not for a different reason. They thought that because he wasn't uh, uh, keeping his promises, he would lose the elections uh, because he did this U-turn on the emissions trading scheme. The same happened to Obama. What happened to his promise that his, when he becomes president, everything will change and he will introduce cap and trade and emissions. And not even in his own party he was able to, to get a support. So there is this backlash, and it is clearly driven by major concern of people who are concerned about the economic costs they will have to pay for these schemes. 
Thank you. Well, I know that you want to respond to that, Duncan, because I can see you um, smiling and nodding, but not, I think, in a nice way. Um, <laughs> but I wanted you to address a point that, that Benny made, which was that there's not much point in discussing the available solar power um, a, as a solution if harnessing that power is going to be too expensive to be contemplated. It's, it's a very easy point to deal with. Benny's right to say it's a relatively expensive source of power at the moment. Um, it is, however, a source of power that the technology is reducing the cost of very rapidly. That's why countries like Spain are now introducing concentrating solar power um, power plants. It's why um, even rooftop photovoltaics are no longer in need of the heavy levels of subsidy that was necessary to begin with. I concede absolutely that it is more expensive than current energy. But I think the key point I was trying to make early on was that there is no scenario in which the cheap fossil fuels that we've enjoyed for the last 40 years will remain cheap and plentiful in the next 40 years. Whatever scenario we go through, energy costs will rise, but we have some very big choices. Um, the final thing to note is that, of course, all the renewables, all the different technologies are in effect one or the other form of solar power, with the exception of tidal, which is, of course, lunar power. Thanks very much. Susan, I want, as you chose to put your political hat back on at the beginning of this, I want to ask you a political question which, in a sense, is the source of tension, uh, current tension in energy policy, the main source of current tensions between Westminster and Holyrood. Um, Holyrood has said that it uh, doesn't want nuclear energy in Scotland, doesn't want to replace the existing stations. It's also said that it can stop the UK government going ahead with a partially nuclear policy because it will use its planning powers to prevent that taking place. Do you regard that as a legitimate use of Holyrood's powers? The short answer to the question is it's clearly legitimate in a technical sense. Um, there's a much broader discussion to be had about whether it's, it's the right way for us to go, and I'll, I'll come back to, to that very point in just a second. Um, but if I could maybe link it back just to where Benny's coming from, you know, I kind of feel and listen to a lot of what he's said tonight, and indeed I've heard so many people over the years, not just in this policy area but in many others, you know, essentially telling us that, well, basically, basically what underpins a lot of the arguments is the observation that Government's difficult and politics and politicians are pretty flawed. Well, you know, tell us something we don't know. You know, yeah, taking these decisions is incredibly hard. There's a lovely tool, actually. I don't know if any of you ever got to the National Museum of Scotland in Chambers Street, but there's a lovely little interactive tool that my kids love where you basically get to pretend to be an energy minister for something country somewhere, you know, a makey-uppy country. And you have to deal with different energy challenges and you have to make choices about whether you're going to build a wind farm or shut a nuclear power station or whatever. And of course, needless to say, with every choice you make, there are consequences and there's always difficult and adverse consequences. If it's not in terms of public opinion, then it's in terms of your know, actual energy supply, your power cuts or whatever. And I just think everybody should have to go and play with this toy because it's pretty real world. Um, and so for all that I was so critical of the political process, I decided to leave it. I will leap to the defense of decision makers in recognizing you know, just the difficulties of dealing with all the variables that governments of whatever you have to deal with. In terms of the nuclear question and also the wider question about the, the relationship between Scotland and Westminster, 
it is hugely important in this area, probably than, more than most, that there's good cooperation between the two levels of government. And to be fair, I think that has been pretty good down the years. What you see is, you know, that kind of headline spat, if you like, around nuclear is the very visible bit, the one-ninth of the iceberg. What a mass, of course, is all sorts of deeper cooperation that does go on. And long may that continue. I mean, I took part in um, the first major, I think it was the first anyway, renewable energy inquiry that the Scottish Parliament did when I was on the Enterprise Committee. And this was very much, you know, one of the areas that, that we explored was the importance of getting that interrelationship of policy making between Scotland and the UK right. Um, as far as nuclear is concerned, I would simply say this, and this is just, just a personal view, and just share, it, share a little story since Duncan's sitting, sitting beside me here. I vividly remember before I left the Parliament getting a survey from Friends of the Air Scotland that said, are you in favour of nuclear power, yes or no? And I assiduously refused to complete this. My researcher was getting really hyped off with me because they kept chasing, you know, and they were going to out us, you know, like whatever, whatever answer you gave was going to be published on the website. But if you didn't reply, that was going to be published on the website too. And I resolutely refused to, to reduce this to a yes or no answer because I thought there was too many shades of grey in there. You know, like most people have anxieties about nuclear power, about the question of waste. I vividly remember Chernobyl. But I also have concerns about carbon emissions. I've also, you know, looked at the numbers in terms of some of the kind of decisions that are going to have to be taken if we are going to keep the lights on into the future. So I have anxieties about a straight sort of for or against position in this. It's one of many areas I'd like to see a more textured discussion, but I'm not going to hold my breath. So you you right. wouldn't like to be an energy minister, I understand. Well, I love the challenges of these things. I'm just, I'm just saying. And, and at least I can put hand in hand and say I've tried to deal with some of them in my time. I, I do have a frustration. I respect everybody's right to hold a viewpoint ab passionately. But I do have a frustration with sometimes people just kind of crossing over into that kind of sniping away at the political process, having never actually had to grapple with, with some of the challenges that are in there and do it in the full public spotlight of public accountability too. Well, we're going to, we're going to grapple with these issues in the, maybe not the full public spotlight because the speaker tent doesn't run to that, but it has got some other lighting which it's going to put on so that we can see what we're dealing with. There is um, a roving mic, ladies and gentlemen, and, and there are many people who might want to listen tonight who can't be here and that's why we're going to have a podcast of this so it's quite important really that you wait till the mic comes your way before you start making your points otherwise they'll get lost in the ether when somebody tries to get them later we'll start off with somebody there who's got a hand up in that in that booth if you can dash out everybody who has these mics goes to aerobics twice a day um, thank you um <clears throat> my, my point is um a very local scottish one if you like but it relates to the Bank of England, which will probably have to print more money or issue more bonds later this year, if only to keep up with Bernanke. Um, and I wonder if it's not possible to look at infrastructure bonds, because we need, we need the fourth estuary, for example, to be protected. Now, for Grangemouth and Moss Modern, but not just um, for the oil industry, because if we look forward and we look at the whiskey industry, we now understand which can produce petrol. And um, if every distillery uses its draft from pot ale in Scotland, we'll produce quite a lot of petrol. And there's also hydrogen production from the wind and marine energy, which all could use Moss Morin and Grangemouth in the future. So I think that we need to have a combined approach with the oil industry and the renewables industry 
to look at the redevelopment of the fourth estuary. So my question to the panel is, do you agree? Thank you very much. That was one of the more popular news stories of the week, that whiskey and uh, oil do gang together. Um, could we maybe start off with, with you and that, Duncan, infrastructure bonds? Um, absolutely. I, I'm a great fan of the idea that um, the, the Bank of England should issue infrastructure bonds. Um, I haven't heard that particular proposal for what you'd spend them on before. Um, some of it I think I agree with, some of it I have, uh, I have reservations about. Um, but the idea that um, we should actually tailor our financial needs in such a way that they drive us towards a, a sustainable infrastructure, whether that's to fund um, climate protection measures or to fund the new green energy sources that are needed, um, is a strong one. My, my only concern about the, the whiskey industry story, because I thought, yeah, that, that, that's a great one, but the whiskey industry has done an awful lot in, in the last decades to find productive uses for its draft and its pot ale. And they go into fertilizers, they go into animal feeds. It's not a, a, a waste product that's getting dumped in a, in a landfill site in, instead. So um, the, the, the potential there is probably a little less than the, uh, the media um, breathless uh, approach implied. You're saying as if we see staggering cows, we shouldn't be too alarmed. Can I just be, <laughs> before I go to uh, the other panellists, could I just direct the mic back round to the booth here? The next question is going to come from. If you could. Thanks very much. Benny. I think uh, the reality is that governments will cut rather than encourage any scheme that will increase uh, the economic burden. Uh, we heard that uh, example of Spain and, and solar energy. Uh, the reality is most European governments are desperately seeking to cut subsidies for renewables because they are extremely expensive. I mean, in Germany, for instance, the feed-in tariffs uh, for solar panels uh, that are guaranteed for 20 years will cost the German economy or the, the German taxpayer 80 billion euros. It's the biggest wealth transfer from the poor to the rich uh, in the history of Germany because obviously the people who can afford to put solar panels on their houses have to invest uh, big sums, which is mainly middle class or upper middle class people. They can afford to invest, but their profit on this investment is enormous. It's much better than putting the money in the bank because the taxpayer pays a fantastic price for the solar energy. So this, this feed-in tariff and other renewable schemes are heavily subsidized. And what does it mean? It means basically the taxpayer has to pay the, the price for the, the green middle classes feeling better. I know Susan wants to come in, but Duncan, just respond to that if you I would, please. I just wanted to add a, a, a coda, if, if I may, which is that, uh, yes, the, the, the feed-in tariffs are expensive. They're part of a package of investments that the German government and the state banks, um, so using the idea, infrastructure bond idea, have put into sustainable energy. 25-year programme to improve German housing. The current estimate is that it's created 300,000 jobs. Yes to a tune of 200,000 euros per job. That's what every solar industry job in Europe, in Germany costs, 200,000 euro per year. Susan? Well, what I will say is that if we're serious about making a reality of what most of the country buys into um, in terms of uh, our renewable energy targets, 
then we have to make sure that the, right, the correct incentive mechanisms are in there, particularly um, to move forward a pace at developing some of the, the newer technologies. And it's interesting, just picking up on the point that was mentioned there about the links between oil, the oil industry and renewables. Um, we're at a really critical juncture in offshore development in Scotland and the UK more generally. And there are many, many transferable skills, apart from anything else, between oil and gas and the, the developing offshore industry. We've got to make sure that we move and move quickly and that we make those kind of connections. And just on that point about skills, and again, back to my practical and pragmatic point, but the kind of thing that I don't think we spend enough time focusing on, we've got to make sure that we've got the engineers and the scientists that we need in the future. Um, certainly, if we're going to be as innovative as we can be around um, developing renewable energy, but also in areas like energy efficiency, um, and I think there's still a big job of work to be done in our schools and colleges to make sure that we're really encouraging people into those occupations. Because if we haven't got people to do the jobs, then, you know, again, the decision making is much less meaningful. Thanks very much. Just before we take that gentleman's question, is there anybody else who wants to... And then the gentleman, not, not just yet, gentleman in the front will be next. You want to make... Yes. Right. First of all, the gentleman with the microphone, Hello. and then we'll come back to you. My name's Chris Storey. I actually come from down south of the border from a nice county called Suffolk, which is only about 60 miles away from London. Um, we see a lot of the issues that you are talking about here from a southern perspective and also from the infrastructure point of view. We suffer from many of the defects that um, you mentioned um, and the persuading the government to invest in um, things that might be beneficial to the environment um, and also to business are going to be key to the future because um, a lot of the things that are needed to drive a green agenda or to drive a business agenda will require some form of government funding yet at the same time the government are desperately looking to cut their budgets cut what they're spending on everything and therefore how are we going to ensure that the correct level of investment is made to drive the correct um, opportunities for business to present, uh, present the opportunity to earn money for the future to get over our budget deficit and at the same time um, support some element of green, green economy. Um, it, is a, it is a very difficult balance and one that I'm not sure that the government have yet worked out their way forward. We, we have been uh, trying to drive an agenda that involves rolling out um, higher speed broadband, for instance, as a way of allowing people to use their cars less. Um, we're 60 miles from London, and yet we have very poor infrastructure, and an economic argument against that, given that you need investment in order to drive that investment to start off with. Um, I, I'm sure that the same must apply up here. How is it going to be met by the government, and how does the, how do the um, panel see the way forward on that? Thanks very much, and, and if, the, if the mic could just come to this gentleman here, we'll take the answers to that question. In a sense that goes back to what you were saying in your initial presentation, Benny, that uh, because of the, the kind of global fiscal uh, imperatives at the moment, that people are going to be more inclined to cut than to invest. 
Yeah, I mean, what this country needs are businesses that make profits, not businesses that need subsidies, basically. And if, a, if, the, if this country can't produce the companies that produce uh, uh, profits without being given handouts from the government, then forget about investment, because investment, government investment can only be affordable if there is some income. So it's, it's and that is the problem. If you're really concerned about the environment, you should really uh, be in favor of a thriving economy that generates the income that can be invested. It's, can it's can not I, the other just, way around. Can I just pick you up on the, on the two specific examples that that gentleman made for us? In order to stop people using their cars more, they needed um, more resources pumped into to universal broadband accessibility. And secondly, that it's 60 miles from London, but it's got a very poor train service, very poor transport infrastructure. And that frankly is not the kind of thing that private investors are going to go for, is it? That has to be more or less a, a government intervention. Well, I'm afraid there won't be much government intervention because the government is broke, basically, and instead of investing, they will cut investment. That is quite obvious. So what we need are entrepreneurs and companies that can actually provide services that are in demand. I mean, it's not that rocket science to, to make clear that we need a thriving economy. The problem has been that there have been too much and too many handouts. Duncan? Yeah, well, I'd, I'd question whether any government's broke that can afford to renew the Trident nuclear deterrent. Um, and I'd also note that although there are free market economists who will echo what, what you've just heard from Benny, there are remarkably respected economists, one of whom um, Ruth was chairing earlier this week, Joe Stiglitz, um, Lord Stern, who I um, spoke with today, Robert Reich, who say the last thing you need to do now is cut investment, and the first thing you need to do is make the investment that you're making now as green as possible, because that is the way that you will create sustainable jobs into the future. And the, what, what the government has got to do is grasp the nettle of um, establishing an effective green investment bank. Um, I personally would advocate that they take the 84% share that we all own in the Royal Bank of Scotland and make that a uh, core part of a green investment bank by ensuring that its lending is directed to things that meet not only economic purpose of creating jobs, but also the environmental and social purposes that we all want to see delivered. Uh, I think the question is probably one of the biggest, um, you know, real present challenges that we face. And I think one of the ways of dealing with it, if you like, is to keep asking it. You know, in other words, it's to, to keep making this point. And I agree absolutely with the point that, that Duncan just made there, that now is absolutely not the time to stop investing. Um, and it's really important that, that that investment is, okay, I don't like the phraseology necessarily, but, you know, green investment, if you, if you like. Um, having, on the one hand, said, you know, don't be, don't be too hard on these poor politicians, life, you know, life can be tough there. What I do think we, collectively, need to press for much more at the different levels of government that we're all exposed to, or not, not just government, I may say, but the political parties more generally, is much more medium to long-term thinking. Um, and something I feel profoundly strongly about and I've done for years. And I think we've seen in Scotland, for example, post-devolution, um, a particular uh, 
form of, of kind of, uh, under different administrations, I may say, you know, of kind of short-term, what I've often called sweeties to the electorate. Um, there you know, are high-cost policies that are popular because, you know, they're introducing so-called free things or whatever. Um, but they all mount up. And I do think that big question about infrastructure investment and longer-term planning, whether it be about energy infrastructure, whether it be about transport infrastructure, communications infrastructure, whatever, I just think we've got to keep shouting about that. But I think, you know, part of the reason for that short-termism is because we're all kind of on that cycle a bit. You know, if you look at what people often demand of the politicians, then it is often those short-term interventions. So again, I think we've got a shared responsibility to be thinking about the long-term and say that we actually understand the importance of investing now for the future. Thank you, gentlemen in the front row. And could another hand up? Yes. And there's, there's one, two, three in the middle, which we'll come to in that order. One, two, three. Yes. Uh, okay, so I, I'm sure the panel are familiar with the story of King Canute, who uh, took his throne and put it down on the shore and uh, ordered the tide to turn back. Let's for a moment put the Scottish government in the position of King Canute, and the, the tide coming in is the growing economies of China, Southeast Asia, India, uh, let's say the USA. Uh, why do we think that these growing economies who are going to be the consumers of the future, who are going to be the ones emitting the, uh, the fossil fuels, are going to take heed of, uh, of Scotland's King Canute? Duncan, I think we'll start with you on that one. I mean, there, there was a widespread um, opinion that one of the reasons that Copenhagen unravelled in the way it did was because that China and China's cheap coal were going, always going to be an impediment. I, I want to answer that question on two, possibly even three levels. First, to remind us that King Canute did that to demonstrate that it was impossible to stop the tide, not to, <laughs> he didn't actually want to. That's my point. All right. But then let's ask what the tide is, because actually I believe the tide is running entirely the opposite direction. I'll present you with two pieces of evidence for that. First, the already growing segment of Scottish exports to India and China includes major investments now in wind farm technology, in wind farm advice. It is the renewable energy sector in China, which is the world's largest wind power program. Yes, they have the world's largest nuclear program and the world's largest coal program as well, but they do have the world's largest wind power program, which is already providing jobs in Scotland. The second thing, and this is perhaps to respond to, to Ruth, is that there's an alternative interpretation of the, the Chinese position, which I find in one sense deeply worrying and in another sense massively optimistic. And that is that China is the nation that is going to sell the world the next generation of technology. They think they can sell us carbon capture and storage, electric vehicles, and all the green technologies that we will be demanding. What they wanted was just the time to get their ducks in a row. Um, and I think that uh, blaming the, the Chinese um, was, a, was a nice... Um, rhetorical device that was set up early in the Copenhagen conference and it's not one that holds water when you scrutinize it in detail. Well that's either the view that I was putting forward was, was, was that of somebody who was in the final blood spattered that, negotiations. That was Mark Linus and um, Mark and I and indeed various other environmentalists have, have debated to what extent 
Mark swallowed a particular line. Well, let, well we wouldn't get that's we, my fault. We're let's not try going to get not to. Yeah, it. it's entirely my fault because, you know, the fact that we both happen to have read the same <laughs> bit of homework <laughs> yeah. doesn't help the audience, Benny. Well, it's quite simple. Uh, if China doesn't provide its 1.2 billion people with uh, cheap energy, there will be a revolution. Uh, it's very, very simple. People in China have aspirations. I, I mentioned that before. Uh, between China and India, uh, who are now on, I think, uh, 2.4 billion, there will be 3 billion Chinese and Indians by 2050, of which half, 1.5 billion people, will live in cities living an urban lifestyle with the energy demands of, an, of a normal city person in, in the Western world. Where is this energy coming from? I said energy demand in China and India is going to treble. Forget windmills and forget solar. I mean, it's very nice to hear that, uh, that Scotland is now exporting windmills. America is exporting 100 nuclear power plants to China. And uh, that in itself will only produce 25% of their energy. 100 new nuclear power plants, 100, will only produce 25% of their energy needs. Where's the other 75% coming from? The reality is that there will not be a legally binding emissions target because they can't afford it. And I agree, it wasn't just China. Obama signed the Copenhagen Accord himself. The only people who weren't in the negotiation at the table were the Europeans. They were left out in front of the door. The Chinese, the Indians, the Brazilians, and the US, Obama, they figured out that this whole European nonsense is not going anywhere, which is why they told them, you stay out, we agree. And that is the new world order. And if the Europeans don't get their act together, then I'm afraid, they will be left behind, literally. Susan, I wonder if we could just uh, come at that just from a, a slightly different perspective, which is that the continuing argument between the developing world and the developed world, the developing world says, well, you made this mess. You made this mess because you behaved irresponsibly. Now you want us just to shut up shop when, when we require energy and we require it now? Yeah, I almost don't know where to start in that wider discussion. Um, other than to say, um, you know, it's part of a much, much bigger issue, isn't it, about the relationship between, as you've put it, the developed and developing world. And to widen the discussion a little bit, you know, one of, one of my disappointments in a sense is that, not least in this city, a few years ago around the whole Make Poverty History campaign and so on, I think we, we reached quite an advanced level of awareness and debate around that wider relationship. And I think it's, it's very sad that it's subsided so much. Um, in other words, I don't think that we can just come at this issue through discussing energy and climate change and carbon emissions and so on. I think it, it's deeper than that. Um, I just wanted to make one other point, though, just in relation to, to the question that was asked. Um, and maybe this is an awful cuthy way of, of illustrating the point or how, how I come at, at this. Um, there's probably a number of us in this room that went through a period of our life refusing resolutely to buy out span oranges 
and arguing with friends of ours in shops as to why we wouldn't buy out span oranges. And if we're being honest, some of the time thinking, what real difference is this going to make? But I can remember watching um, black South Africans queuing up at the polling stations when they got their first vote and tears rolling down my cheeks and actually having a sense of just somehow, somewhere, all of us that hadn't bought our outspan oranges had maybe just made a little bit of a difference. And I don't want to come over all sort of Obama-esque here, not least because I can't emulate him, but I do think you have to believe that change is possible. And I do think that when you get into that place, it says kind of, oh, what's the point? What's the point of us doing anything because them over there aren't changing? It's, it's a bad place to end up and it's the wrong place to end up. Um, it's the wrong place for politicians to end up, but it's the wrong place for us as citizens to end up. So I just, I can't allow, and won't allow myself to go there um, because it, it, and it, it takes us into, I think, really quite a defeatist and powerless um, sort of place. Okay, thank you. Now, I'm hoping somebody there's got a microphone. We had three hands up. Where's the microphone going? Uh, yeah, I've got it. Um, hi, Benny. My question is mostly directed to Benny. So, I mean, I, I understand. I, I appreciate realism. Um, I, I basically agree with you that I, I don't think there'll be widespread adoption, worldwide adoption of renewables until they're cheaper than fossil fuels. Uh, but my question is, given that renewables are going down in price and fossil fuels are going up in price, at which point in the future do you think that they'll be cheaper? When will that crossover occur? And do you see any advantage to a country getting in on it? earlier. Oh, it's going to happen. No question about it. Uh, the, but what we don't know is a when. We don't know, and much more importantly, which alternative energy. That is the big problem. Do governments actually who now subsidize these renewables, do they know which subsidies will actually work out and which will be a complete waste? of money. That's the big issue. There's no question that sooner or later, and no one knows when this is going to be, alternative energies will be cheaper than, than some of the fossil fuels, particularly oil. On the other hand, we just saw, totally out of the blue, completely unexpected, a totally new fossil fuel revolution. The shale gas revolution is completely changing the whole industry. No one knew that there was so much around that you had the technology to actually extra, uh, extract it. And suddenly, uh, as you can see in the US and now in Europe, everyone is, is looking for this new stuff. So there, there, there are so many um, factors. You cannot predict it. The question is, can you force it? Can government pick? winners. And that's where I'm critical. I'm all in favor of renewables and alternatives, but I'm against wasting billions. Okay, now I, we're not got a huge amount of time. So I just want to reassure that gentleman who had his hand up in the air for most of that, that I will come to you. But can you just hand the mic to, to, to well, okay, can you, and then can you put it back to that lady when you finish? We'll just take two questions at once here. Uh, is it working? Yes. Uh, could, I, could I just make a point as a geologist that we're missing out on time here? That before the last ice age, sea levels were seven meters higher. In the past, sea levels being much higher. And at those times, CO2 was higher. If we wait for subsidies and tax to take over, we're going to be flooded. Bangladesh will be gone. Even my house in Portobello will be gone. But there's lots of people that are going to suffer. 
shouldn't we be doing something now in terms of tax and um, incentives to make things happen? Because if we wait for Benny, all of Bangladesh is going to be flooded, or most of Bangladesh is going to be flooded. Millions of people are going to be dead. And these guys are not saying anything about that. Okay, and the Maldives Parliament will be underwater, I gather. Um, could you just hand that to the lady there? Um, thank you. Well, you to the lady in front. The lady in front. I'm trying to get everybody in before... And you guys are going to have to be very brief in your responses, yes. I'd just like to correct three um, fallacies I think Benny's been saying. One is that the, the working classes are not very bright. What? Two is that you can't make money out of solar energy. And three is that China is the problem. I built the first photovoltaic roof in Britain on my house in Oxford. I went back in 1995. I've had a you know, six-bedroom house, 10 years, 100 pound bills every year for energy. I went back a month ago and my housekeeper there um, said to me, you'll be very pleased, Sue. I've just put a four kilowatt peak um, array on my ex-council house and um, we've done all the maths and we're really going to make money. Number two is the AES Solar in Scotland is the oldest solar hot water manufacturer in Northwest Europe. For the last 10 years, they have grown 20% per annum, and they're looking at now um, going to China to Dezhou for the Solar Cities Congress, where 95% of all the buildings in Dezhou have solar arrays on their roofs to do maybe a joint venture with Scotland. So they are part of the solution because we're importing their technology. Thank you. Could you just give that back to the gentleman behind? I'm trying to keep track of all these. Carry on, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, just to the gentleman behind me at my table, uh, I think the IPCC worst-case scenario at the moment over the next 100 years is 0.4 to 0.6 of a metre, so we're not talking about many, many metres. I want to introduce the, the moral issue or pick up the, the moral question which uh, Duncan touched on. And Duncan, you touched on it in relation to uh, Pakistan and the floods in Pakistan, although I am conscious that there are not very many scientists who would make that direct link. Um, and I think we saw that on Newsnight last night, where that was where there was complete agreement that you can't make that direct link. But I want, the, the question I really want to raise is um, in relation to energy and poverty and the payload that we have with green energy at the moment, bear in mind there may well be a crossover point jam tomorrow. Surely our moral priority at the moment is to build on the huge success there has been in providing energy for poor people in the world, uh, which has been so relatively successful over the recent generation, and that needs cheap energy now in okay. order to do Thank you very much. Sir. I promised that gentleman who did his hand up for ages, so if we just take his point quickly and then we'll let the panel loose on these. Microphone coming to you. Somebody will give it to you, sir. There we go. Thank you. I just wanted to make a couple of points. One is with reference to the history at the time of the first crisis of cash in 1930. Uh, Hoover's government had followed the policies which our government here is currently following, that is to cut back and uh, try to solve uh, the issue of uh, debt and so forth by reducing costs. And that proved two things. One is industry and enterprise did not come in to fill the gap because they saw no profit in it. It had to be done through government subsidy. 
that what they did do is control the banks, and that helped to establish uh, a period of relative calm, and during which the United States and most of the rest of the world did most of the initial laying of foundations of the present economic system. Secondly, China is a controlled government, and there's no chance that the people there are going to rise up in, in some kind of revolution. That's not the Chinese way, and the Chinese on top of that, as one other speaker here also mentioned, they're way ahead in solar energy. They're going to use renew, I mean, uh, fossil fuels, but their focus is on developing the others and controlling that and their water systems. You watch China, they'll beat you as well as us. Okay, thank you very much indeed. I'm going to stop it there because we, we've, we've got very little time. Could I just say to our panelists that we've only got five minutes for all of you to respond to five questions, so I crave your indulgence. <laughs> I'm risking my neck with Susan Deacon. I know who never uses one word where 45 or suffice. Yeah, so. <laughs> um, she's a pal. Um, can we start with you, Benny, and could you just perhaps um, in the first instance pick up on two of the points because they, I think they were mainly directed at you. One was um, that uh, we can't hang around for, for cheaper energy because um, significant parts of the globe will be underwater by the time it comes around. And the lady who, who suggested that you were being economical with the truth about solar energy, that it could be affordable and it was getting cheaper and it does work. Okay, three uh, points. Uh, regarding sea level rise, we already heard that even the IPCC um, doesn't talk about meters of sea level rise, but centimeters. Um, but even though there will always be floods, there will always be droughts, there will always be hurricanes, and so countries need to be resilient. And to make a country resilient, and you can see that in Pakistan, the difference between Pakistan and the US is Pakistan start poor, in the US is developed. What we need is a developed nation that can withstand these kind of natural disasters. Point two, um, solar energy, I think even jo uh, George Monbiot uh, is clear about who, uh, he calls it the great green ripoff, and he calls it the biggest wealth transfer that's going to happen because at the end of the day, that's where the money is going. It's not about the poor being thick, it's about uh, exploiting them as taxpayers. And number three, the moral case. And that's where the Greens, I think in the, in the Independent, there was a comment last week, it's the first social movement where every leader is filthy rich. That's what the Independent said. And that's true. You have the first Green billionaires. Everyone in this movement somehow has some stake in some Green company. The point is that the price for these, in my view, economically uh, foolish policies are paid by the people who can, can least afford it. And the number of people in fuel poverty is going up because energy, as a result, is becoming more expensive. Duncan. <laughs> I'm clearly not a green leader, um, so that's, that's me. Go, go. And you were Goodbye. Here the last time I looked. Um, and you don't have any shares either. I, I have shares as part of my pension package, as a lot of people right, do. Right, chaps, you can chat about that later. The moral, the moral issue that faces us is fundamental, and it is one that we've skirted around all night. It is that in this world, resources are limited, and they are particularly limited by the spectre of climate change, which puts a cap on how much energy of the fossil sort we can use. Now, what 
Benny and his ilk would have us do is give that to the people with most money by free market mechanisms. What we would have you do as Greens is say that this space needs to be fairly allocated, recognising that the rich and the powerful have had most of it in the past and have most of it now. And it is the poor of this world in Pakistan, in China, who have the right to more of it in the future. What that means is if we are all going to get by on an interdependent world, is that we have to come up with ways of delivering our energy needs sustainably into the long term. And that can be done with a concerted effort for renewables. It won't be done by trying to provide cheap energy, because actually that's bad for your economy too. All the econo econo economic studies I have seen show that with higher energy prices, businesses use it more efficiently, they become more productive across the whole piece. And the opposite, cheap energy and cheap resources, is already becoming known as the resource curse. That's why Nigeria is not the world's richest country, even though it has remarkably cheap energy. Susan, this is a, a bit like the end of the Flash Gordon movie. You've got two minutes to save the earth. <laughs> I will make two points to the geologist from Portobello. Um, the exhortation to, to just do it, get on with the act now, I think it, it should be constantly uh, shouted. Um, I feel in this area, as in many others, we've spent too much time on process and analysis and not enough time on action. One of the reasons why I think it's so important that people come together and work across boundaries, however, is because as long as policy solutions remain highly politicised or contested, then it's just inaction that flows from that. So we have to find a way of building agreement as to how we'll move forward to get that pace um, that's needed. And the final point was I just wanted to say thank you to the woman at the front for the examples that she gave. And there are so many more real examples of fantastic developments, large and small, in this country of ours, um, from micro-renewables through to some amazing sort of innovation on bigger marine technologies and so on. Um, and I want us to spend more time celebrating and supporting um, those developments, because there's a chance here for Scotland to really make, uh, make a difference in real time. As I said from the outset, that I think is the biggest prize of all. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I well recognise that these are immense, uh, immensely complex issues and there's not a, a chance in hell or even on earth of solving them in the allotted time span. But I think you'll agree that our panellists not only laid out the issues very clearly for us, but gave us very wisely of the time. Would you please join me in thanking them all? Many more Edinburgh International Book Festival event recordings are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk, along with a selection of videos.